Hey listeners, welcome to the Intelligent Conversations, where we believe that everyone has a form of intelligence that resides within them. We invite guests from various backgrounds to share with you what makes them unique. Our hope is that you and I can learn and grow together. Without further ado, welcome to the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Intelligent Conversations podcast. Today I have the honor to speak with Vic Ferrari. Vic is a retired NYPD detective. He has since become an author and has written six books, I believe. So Vic, thank you for coming on today. I'm excited to learn from you. But this is a question I want to open up with, and it's how did you get into law enforcement? Like, I feel like that's a trajectory not too many people may take, especially in New York. How did you kind of get into that, and what was your initial draw to it? Well, first, Josh, I want to say thank you for having me on your show. I appreciate it. I don't know how intelligent my conversations are going to be, (laughs) but I'm going to try my best. So um, I grew up in the Bronx in New York City, lower middle class kid. In my neighborhood, it was either civil service, some went to college, or the mafia. So I really wasn't interested in joining organized crime. I had no aspirations of, uh, for higher education, unfortunately. And growing up in the 70s and 80s, on television and movies, it was all these shows about the New York City Police Department. So I knew at an early age what I wanted to do. And I like to tell the story by age of 10, my friends and I used to sneak into the post office and steal the FBI wanted posters off the wall. And then we'd go around the neighborhood and picture a bunch of 10 year olds with with stolen wanted posters and we're walking into a deli of construction workers waiting for their sandwich. And I'm like, that could be that right there. You you know what I mean? Thank God there was no such thing as cell phones because we'd have been on the phone like, yeah, I think uh, Mm -hmm. Billy Ray Allen wanted for that bank robbery in Louisiana is up here in the Bronx. So I knew what I wanted to do. My parents wanted me to go to college. I, I wouldn't. I, I had no. Didn't want to do it. And uh, but luckily for me, it worked out. By age twenty, I took the police exam. By twenty-one, I went into the police academy and I had a wonderful twenty-year career with the New York City Police Department. That's awesome. If I'm correct, you're you're a detective. You were a detective, right, for part of the time. Yeah, I did my first 10 years as, as a police officer, and then I was promoted about 10 years into my career to detective. Awesome. So I guess this is kind of a question I have. What's kind of the difference between, like, in the field, like, police officer and, and a detective? I think I think most people know, like, they investigate, you know, some of these other things, but what what's kind of the primary difference there? Okay. So the New York City Police Department, the, um, the flow chart works like this. So it's cop, sergeant, lieutenant, captain, and those are all civil service ranks. So you have to take a test, Mm -hmm. you have to pass a background check, you have to have college credits, and then you move up. And then past the rank of captain, it's all political appointees. That's when it starts getting weird. (laughs) Detective is lateral to police officer. So detective, to become a detective, you have to work an investigative unit like the robbery identification program, narcotics, vice, auto crime, and and many more units. And if you work in one of these units, and in my day, I think it was 18 months, you get a good evaluation, you get promoted to the rank of detective. Now, rank of detective, you're paid, back then it was like, I think like $3,500 more a year. You worked a little bit more, like a cops worked eight hours and 35 minutes. I think we worked eight hours and 15. Um, You can't boss a cop around, a cop can't boss you around, but there is a mutual respect. Now, now you're getting into detectives. There's different types of detectives. 
So in the New York City Police Department, you have 77 police stations scattered across the five boroughs, right? And each precinct's got like 100 cops. Well, some pre smaller precincts will have 100 cops. The larger ones in Manhattan would have hundreds of cops. Upstairs from every NYPD precinct, you have a detective squad. And depending on the size of the precinct, some squads have five or 10 detectives, others have 25. Just depends on how busy, we call it a house, how busy the house is. And what those detectives do is they're handling everything. It's like a buffet, bounce checks, domestic violence, homicides that come rolling in, robberies sometimes, okay? Then you have what I did. I was a detective and I worked under OCCB, Organized Crime Control Bureau. And under OCCB, you had narcotics, vice, auto crime, and, and other specialized units that targeted organized crime. So we weren't getting police reports coming our way. We were proactive. We, we wanted to get to the root of the problem. So when I worked in narcotics, we were going out doing buy and bust operations, locking up drug dealers, seeing if we could flip them, turn them into informants, set up larger buys, get search warrants to kick in doors of apartments. I worked there for a short period of time, absolutely hated narcotics. Then I worked in the auto crime division, which is everything with chop shops, organized crime, selling stolen vehicles, changing VIN numbers on cars for resale, exporting stolen cars out of the country for big money. And that, that's what I did my last 10 years. I worked in organized crime as a detective. That's cool. So you, you almost catch some of these more sophisticated uh, criminals too, right? So, I mean, you said you worked in narcotics and then... Uh, moved to like selling cars and stuff like people would I don't even All know how that in my career yeah I worked in narcotics for about 14 months I was about four months shy of getting my detective shield and I said I'm getting the f out of here like they burn you out in the NYPD so you're doing buy and bust so it's like every day say, say it's me and you and three other guys right we're in a team so there's like five guys mm-hmm. then you have a sergeant and then you have undercovers and every couple of days you go out and you do buy and bust. You give the undercovers a hundred bucks. They photocopy the money. So they have all the serial numbers, right? On the cash. Mm-hmm. So when you arrest the drug dealer, if they have the pre-recorded buy money, it makes it for a stronger case. Your undercovers go out. They make a couple of buys at one set. They tell you to move in. You move in, you grab those guys. A panel truck van pulls up. You throw them in like like lumber at Home Depot. You go to the next set. You lock up another couple of drug dealers. Then once you got about 10 or 15 people in that van, you take them to the precinct, and then it's mass processing. It's, it's you're, you're strip searching. You're going through this stuff. You're debriefing them. And in New York, you have a lot of street people that sell drugs. They're not kingpins, they're addicts themselves, but the kingpins use them to sell drugs. So a heroin addict will get a free deck of heroin for every 10 he sells, or a crackhead will get a couple of vials of crack for every vial of crack he sells. These people, they're out in the weather, they're homeless. So when you're locking them up, you're always afraid of getting stuck with a needle. Right, you're searching these people, they're street people, you always say, listen, you got a needle on you because I don't want hepatitis C or AIDS, right? They're, they're always sick, they're coughing on you, right? I always had a cold, like I remember that working in the narcotics division, I always had a f-ing cold. I was always like, <laughs> like, didn't you just get over something? I'm like, yeah, I got it again. So I went backwards, I said, I- I'm done. I went back to patrol. I actually went back in uniform in a precinct and everybody says, what are you nuts? I'm like, listen, I'm not happy. I'm not, I'm not just doing this to earn a detective shield. Although that was my ultimate goal. Mm-hmm. And I was always a car guy. I was always getting into car chases in uniform. I grew up in a neighborhood 
filled with car thieves and I worked in a gas station where they were always rolling through with broken steering columns and punched out locks and trying to sell the car, trying to sell cars. <laughs> I knew what to look for. So I had so many car arrests that when I went for my auto crime division interview, they were like, yeah, well, he knows what he's doing. And that's how I got into the auto crime division. Wow. That is quite a story. I mean, now that you mention kind of what like needles sticking out and you're always getting sick, that doesn't seem appealing to a lot of people, but you know, we need people to do it too. So, um, why do you think some people maybe are drawn to doing that instead? Drawn to what? Like the narcotics division. Cause I mean, someone's doing it, right? Is it just, they just have to do it, get a paycheck or is there, have you met people that actually enjoy doing that? It's for the action. I mean, if you're young and full of piss and vinegar and you want to run around, I mean, Listen, the first couple of weeks in narcotics was fun. I mean, you're in a foot chase every five seconds because you roll up on a set. The drug dealers know they just sold to an undercover. They see all these they see all these guys getting out of unmarked cars, pulling out shields. And it's like the rodeo. People are throwing shit up in the air. You got to remember, like, in New York in the 90s, early 90s, you had corners like 110 and Lex in Manhattan. And on four corners... You could have 10, 15 people on each corner involved in the drug world. You got a couple of guys selling, right? You got a couple of lookouts. You got a guy that collects the cash. You got a manager watching that the drug dealers don't walk off with their money. On big sets, you have an enforcer or two walking around with a gun that someone doesn't rip off the drug set. You got to be careful with the enforcer because if he's got a gun and he's on parole and he thinks you're going to grab him, you know, now it's on. So there's a lot of moving parts in a buy and bust operation. But, yeah, we would pull up. I remember pulling up looking for a guy in a red sweatshirt because that was a description from the undercover. And here's a female in a green T-shirt and she's... (laughs) trying to dump crack in a mailbox like what the fuck you know you grab her she's got drugs on it you grab her and then now you're looking for the guy in the red shirt it was like the circus man that is that's crazy so i mean i know your time there was short but what would you say is your craziest like experience doing a drug bust or one of those busts Listen, we could talk as long as you want. Um, I'll tell you a funny one. So we're up in Washington Heights, and Washington Heights, the whole neighborhood is Spanish. It's it's, it's basically like the Dominican Republic up there. Mm -hmm. And uh, we got a search warrant for an apartment. We knocked down the door. We locked up a couple of guys. They were selling, um, if memory serves me correctly, they were selling powder coke, like like Mm -hmm. $25 pieces to like an eighth of an ounce. So we kick in the door. I think we locked these guys up. This is so long ago, but this part I remember. So we're in this apartment and you got to remember when we roll up, we're in unmarked cars. So a lot of times it doesn't look like the police are in the building, right? Mm -hmm. So we're up in this apartment. We've been up there an hour or two. We're finishing up. The bad guys are gone. We're like searching under the sink and just, you know, looking around to see if there's a trap, a built-in like... And these guys were ingenious. Like they put like a windowsill that would pop down. You could hide a gun or a couple of ounces. Same with the cars that have secret compartments like James Bond stuff. So we're, we're in this apartment, right? Me and a couple of detectives and the sergeant. And there's a knock at the door. Like, knocking <laughs> on the door, right? So, I mean, I looked a lot different. I had longer hair and a beard. And the guy I was working with had very long hair. And uh, we opened the door. And there's this short, roly-poly white guy from New Jersey. And he, he opens the door and he looks at us and then he looks at the apartment number and he looks at us and he looks at the apartment number and I know what he's thinking, right? Like, what the fuck? And he goes, um, where's the, uh, the Dominican guys that, that, that used to live here? I go, ah, we threw them out. I'm running the show. What do you want? And he goes, 
Uh, I says, well, you're here for something. You know, what can I help you with? Come on, let's do business. And the guy goes, uh, no, no, nothing for me today, thanks. And he turns and he starts walking down the hall. So I said it as a joke. I'm like, come back here. And he took off running and he started dumping coke out of his pocket. So we locked him up and brought him into the apartment. He said, and then we continued searching the apartment with him sitting there handcuffed. I, we, I, like, I think he picked up like an, a quarter of an ounce or something in another spot. They were out. So we went to like old reliable because he was taking the coke and going back to New Jersey and stepping on it and, you know, making more money. But it was just so funny because he came to the door and just to look at his face, he's looking at two white guys. He's like, uh, oh, I'm like, yeah, come on, come on in. He's like, no, I don't think so. And when I yelled, come back here, he started dumping shit as he was heading for the, for the elevator. Wow. That that's funny. Oh, another time we chased a guy. Another time we hit an apartment. A guy went out the back window. Now I'm thinking. I have thinking a narcotic story. We're chasing this guy, and we're gaining on him. He's got no place to go, and there's a railing, and then there's a drop, and I think it's called Fort Tryon Park. And the fucking guy jumped, and we're like, "Holy shit!" And he hit a tree. He hit a fucking tree branch, like. I mean, <laughs> And we're like, get down here, you know, and he's, you know, he's looking at us and he's trying to shimmy down the tree and he's doing a good job of it. Right. And we're on mm -hmm. the radio trying to get cars to the other end of the park to catch him. And he hit the wrong branch and it was like something out of a movie. You just saw the branch go and the branch broke. And he went sailing down like, you know, 15, 20 feet, breaks his ass, gets up, gives us the finger and limps into the woods and we never saw him again. Wow, that is that is one heck of a story. And I mean, that just goes to show when some people get on drugs, they just are not they are not themselves at all. We just have nine lives when that adrenaline is flowing and you put the heat on their ass, man. I mean, they will do things, you know, that you've never seen, but like humanly possible. Yeah, I remember. So we we have a cop that kind of lives in our area and he works. I remember he taught showed us like this video and there's this guy he's he's running he's running they're chasing him down and and he literally just like hops over like a 15 foot fence just like whoop, just like leaps over it and everyone's like there's no way that is humanly possible there's no freaking way oh, yeah. but he just leaped over it like a bunny and it was just like <laughs> what the crap and he's like yeah that's the one we kind of let get away there was no we had to sit there and we had to like climb our way up and try and find a way over and he just whoop, just right over it's that's just kind of what it reminded me so I guess let's kind of move over to like the next part of your journey at the auto crime division. That's what you moved to next, correct? Yeah. So within that, kind of explain what that is, because I'll be honest. I mean, I know there's like carjackings and like people will steal cars. But I mean, you kind of mentioned that there's a little bit more to it as well. Can you kind of? Yeah. So, so New York City, you've got 9 million residents packed into the five boroughs, right? In the 90s, mm -hmm. when I got to the auto crime division, New York City was averaging 150,000 stolen vehicles a year. That's so if you were driving around with a computer in the car and were punching plates, it was like pulling the slots at your local casino, like ding, 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 stolen vehicle, <laughs> and you were off to the races. So did we pick off the occasional pain in the ass car thief? Yeah. But our, our mission was to go after the big guys where the cars were going. Mm -hmm. So the auto crime, the NYPD's auto crime division had 120 detectives and cops in it. And we were broken up into different teams. So each borough had a team of a sergeant and several detectives and a lieutenant overseeing 
that that module. So I worked out of the, I worked out our main office was in Queens. I worked out of a satellite office in the Bronx, and the Bronx office had one team that covered the Bronx, and at one time we had two teams covering Manhattan, Manhattan North and Manhattan South. Then it became just Manhattan. The way we worked was like the guys in the Bronx, they were very active because in, in the Bronx you have a lot of um, a lot of salvage yards, junkyards, and mm -hmm. A lot of them on paper are legitimate businesses, but if they take in a stolen car, it's found money. You, you know what I mean? Because if, if you bring somebody your old jalopy, they're going to have to pay you a couple of hundred bucks to take it off your hands, provided you have the title and the proper paperwork. If they know Fast Eddie and Fast Eddie brings them in, you know, a two-year-old Honda Accord, which is worth $20,000 and Fast Eddie wants $500 for it, and they're going to make $20,000 off the parts. They're going to they're gonna deal with Fast Eddie from time to time. It's money under the table. Then you have places that were out now thieves. These are the guys that sent out steel teams. You know, they, they would send out guys to order. I need a Nissan Maxima with Bose speakers. I need, you know, I need a Toyota Camry with, with, leather, with leather interior. I need those seats. So we would go up on wiretaps. And I mean, when, when you go up on wiretaps, you really learn so much about how the auto theft industry works, how they put in the orders, the way they deal with the underlings. Like we, we did a case where the cars were getting exported to Shanghai and these guys were stealing 30 cars a month. And um, we one time, one of the guys, and they were very specific, the guys running the operation, they wanted just Audi A6s and the cars had to be silver and black. And I remember one of the thieves brought him a green one and they went ballistic, like, I don't want it. I'm not paying for it. You know, it's like buying something from Bed Bath and Beyond and you bring it back. They, they were like, I'm not paying for this car. I said silver and black. That That's the deal. And then the bad guys got pissed off because they were like, you hear them on the phone like, what the fuck am I going to do with this green Audi now? You know, so now it's instead of just like leaving it in the street, they're shopping it around. You know, they're taking it up to the Bronx to see if someone will take it off their hands. OK, that, that kind of helps it make sense, like how how it works and how. Well, we would get search warrants for these places. So what we would do is either through confidential informants, which are guys we locked up for stolen cars. <clears throat> Say I lock up a car thief. He's a Bronx guy and he's looking at four years upstate New York in prison. You want to cooperate or you want to go to jail? So chances are, depending on the guy, they're going to flip. And what will happen is we'll work out an agreement with their attorney and the district attorney that's handling their case and we'll sign him up as a confidential informant. And then what he's gonna do is he's gonna go out, he's not supposed to steal for these guys, but what he's supposed to do is go around and get you information. Like, yeah, I just went over to Fast Eddie's and he's got he's got two Cadillacs in his garage. I'm like, okay, can you get us the plates? Can you get us the license plate number? Can it get us the VIN number? And if he comes back and says, yeah, I, I, yeah and, you write, and you run it and it comes back stolen, and he tells you, I just saw it an hour ago, we go, to the, we go to the court, we have a district attorney write up a search warrant, we have a judge sign off on it, and then we'll go and hit the place. Then we'll grab Fast Eddie and say, you know, hey, Fast Eddie, you know, you want to roll? Like, do you know someone else that's, and if Fast Eddie doesn't want to go to jail, he'll give somebody up. So it's just kind of working up the chain and kind of forcing people to rat each other out and over time, eventually you get to the big guy, right? Yeah, well, sometimes, like I know our Queens and Brooklyn teams that were 
targeting. I mean, all they did was mafia stuff. A lot of the mob guys own junkyards and salvage yards. And what they would do is sometimes they would disguise, it's called a, a pole camera. They would have what would look like just a regular piece of equipment from the cable company, the phone company, but it was a camera. And we could record the comings and goings and the license plate numbers. So if you're watching 10 cars a week go into this place and they're never leaving, right? You get the license plate numbers, you start running them and they're coming back stolen. You, you get that warrant. A lot of times um, it's also insurance fraud. So say for argument's sake, you leased, you and your girlfriend leased a brand new car and you know the reason that lease works is because the two of his combined income can pay for make the payments and then you and your mm -hmm. girlfriend break up she says well you're on you're on the hook for it I'm, I'm gone now you're paying all this money for the car and in addition to that her kid threw up in the back seat and you're over on the miles and you know when you return that lease you're gonna get Right. The, the company that owns is going to say, well, Josh, <laughs> you know, you owe us three thousand dollars because you're over on the mileage exactly. and there's vomit stain in there. Right. And, and you can't make the payments. So you go to Fast Eddie and you go, hey, Fast Eddie, would you take this car off my hands? And he goes, sure, Josh, just bring it around. <laughs> bring it around on Monday about four o'clock. You drive in, you go see Fast Eddie. He closes the gate. He shakes your hands. Fast Eddie tells you, give me a couple of days. Don't report this thing stolen until I can make this car disappear. Because I don't want the cops walking in and seeing this car in here and you report it stolen. Fast Eddie's gonna call you on Friday or send a message to you and go, it's gone, go ahead. You're gonna walk into your local police station Friday or Saturday and go, I went to bed last night, the car was outside my window and now it's gone, right? Cops take the police report. You file an insurance claim, right? And if you own the car, what does the insurance company do? If the car is recovered within 30 days, the insurance company cuts you a check. Or if it's a leasing company, you have insurance. That's the beauty of having insurance. Somebody stole my car, right? But if we've got a camera up or we've got an informant and we see 10 cars go in there on a Monday and Friday, Saturday, Sunday, people are reporting him stolen. Yeah, Fast Eddie's got a problem. Like he's getting locked up, right, for chopping these cars. But the 10 guys, you and your friends that have been just handed over, it's called give ups. Mm -hmm. We're going to lock, we're going to come and lock you guys up later on down the road for filing all these insurance claims. That's a third of, of auto theft in New York. Wow. That, I, man, we're just barely touching it here. So this is something, this is a question I kind of have. So you know how you like get people to kind of go and inform on others, you cut them a deal. Have you ever had someone like just say, you know what, screw it, like, and then just totally go rogue? Or are they usually pretty, like they stick with the deal? You can't trust an informant as far as you can throw them. An informant is like a fat kid holding 50 candy bars and doesn't want to give one up. They, they always, they're supposed to come clean about everything, right? And they don't. You, you, it, it's the leverage you have. I mean, the beauty of the FBI and, and if something goes federal, I mean, criminals are scared shitless of, of a case going federal and rightfully so because A, they can pretty much do whatever they want with you. B, the sentencing guidelines are so much stricter and C, if you get convicted of a federal crime and you live in Utah, they can send you anywhere in the country to serve your time. So if you live in Utah and you get a couple of years federally, 
They can send you down to Coleman in Florida. Who the hell's going to come visit you? You know, if you're in jail in Utah, it sucks, but your mom's going to come see you once a week. <laughs> no one's coming to see you in Florida, right? You know, it's like, you know, and, and federal, all prisons don't happen to be in like resort areas. Like, yeah, I'm staying at the Marriott. I'm going to go see my kid in Leavenworth. These fucking places are in the middle of nowhere. You know what I mean? So nobody wants, you know, God forbid they send you to Coleman, like ADX in Florence, like um, the Alcatraz of the Rockies. Yeah, good luck. There's no Motel 6 around there. You know what I mean? You've got to fly into fucking Colorado, you know, and, and, and drive 100 miles to get strip search to see your kid for 15 minutes. So nobody wants to go federal. Sometimes our cases went federal, but the vast majority were state charges. So, and in New York... Do they take auto theft seriously? It depends. We didn't have much leverage over these guys because a lot of times, depending on their record, they weren't going to serve much time. So they'd say, yeah, 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 I'm going to be an informant. And then you catch them bullshitting you and you would just deactivate him and tell the district attorney, like, he's not playing ball. I'm just, I, I don't want to deal with this guy anymore. And then, you know, his case would get, you know, it would go through the system. But we had sometimes, I never had any luck with informants. I, I, I really, in my career, I only had a handful. I never trusted them. I always verified what they told me. Like if they said, yeah, 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 go get, I would, if they told me something, I would go and check on it. I just didn't run to a district attorney for what they told me on blind faith. I worked with a guy that had an informant that like we couldn't keep up with them for whatever reason. This informant loved my old partner. And this guy would call us up that, uh, you know, I just saw a guy put three kilos in a car. We'd stop the car. There's three kilos in the car. Another time he, he was with his friend who saw Mike Tyson driving around on a brand new Ducati, which is back then was a $30,000 motorcycle. His friend watches Mike Tyson go into the Javits Center. His friend jumps on Mike Tyson's Ducati, which I don't recommend taking anything from Mr. Tyson. Pulls <laughs> his motorcycle, drives Mike Tyson's motorcycle into his apartment up in the Heights. And we got a search warrant. We got Mike Tyson's motorcycle back. Now, granted, it was in parts, and Mike Tyson wasn't too thrilled that we got his bike back in parts. But, you know, it's like this informant was great. But then, you know, he started getting in trouble, and we had to deactivate him. Man. Yeah, so why why do you think the is the draw... I guess to keep going because I feel like once you kind of get down that road right you get a lot of repeats so how do you kind of deter that I guess is the question I have what do you mean like uh, repeat offenders yeah like repeat offender like because you said that usually it's like a fat kid holding a bunch of candy right it's like they're gonna go for it again so how do you kind of I guess make sure they don't repeat there's different criminals I mean I mean you have the ones the lower tier ones that they're drug addicts. You know what I mean? They mm -hmm. get clean, they go back, especially with heroin. They get clean, they go back. They get clean, they go back. So they're never going to be able to really hold a full-time job, right? Even for the short time that they're sober. They can't get out of their own way. And so they, they're going to do what they know. You know, they're running mm -hmm. low on cash. You know what? You know, rent's due. I'm going to deal with Fast Eddie. I'm going to bring him a car. I'll do it once. I'll do it twice. Then before you know it, they're up and running again. Then you got the guys, I mean, they've been stealing since they could crawl. That's all they know. That's how they make a living. They don't want to work a nine to five job. They, they don't want, they want to be their own boss. You know, they want to work at their own leader. Oh, these guys have the greatest schedule in the world. I remember like, we like, they get up late. You know what I mean? They, they get, they rise by 10, 11 o'clock. 
they're out stealing at eh, midnight and they're partying with their girlfriends. I mean, go back to bed. They're not paying taxes. You, you know what I mean? It's, you know, they got the life until they get caught or someone kicks their ass trying to steal their car. Mm, that's it right there. And so, I mean, I'm going to kind of shift gears here. This is something I just thought of, but the movies, right? A lot of pop culture, people watch the movies and all that. But I actually want to ask this. How much of it is real and how much of it is just, just full of crap? It's just not real at all. Like what happens in the movies and you're like, oh, yeah, that actually does happen. But then what is like, OK, that's a little bit exaggerated. OK, yeah, sure. It's not as action packed as the movies. But if, if, if you're an active cop and you know what to look for, there's going to be plenty of action. You're going to be in foot chases. You're going to be in car chases. The, diff- the biggest difference between movies and reality is, in reality, there's consequences for your actions. Mm-hmm. So you watch these television shows and these lethal weapon movies, and they're crashing cars and getting into gunfights, and then they're going out for a beer. It doesn't work that way. If you get into a car accident, it's a big deal in the NYPD. If you start racking up car accidents, you're not going to drive. You're just not. If you're a cop in a precinct, they're going to put you. They're going to put you on a foot post, or you're going to be answered phone. If you're a detective and you keep getting into car accidents and car chases, your sergeant's going to say, "Let him drive." You know what I mean? So, and you're going to get start getting sued, and the department will only indemnify you for so long because after a while, you're a liability, and they're not going to indemnify you. On top of that, so like, let's address like in the movies where guys are getting into gun battles all the time. Yeah. I mean, there's 35,000 NYPD members, between 30 and 35,000 at any given time. And I have a lot of friends that were in gun battles. I have friends that were shot. I have friends that have killed people. I'm lucky enough. I, I didn't have to deal with that. But when you get involved in a shooting, it's a big deal. It's just not like, eh, got Josh, go home. And tomorrow when you come in, we'll talk about this. So, and I always like to give this scenario. Say you and I are working together in a precinct. We're precinct cops in uniform. Mm-hmm. And we're doing a morning shift. We're doing a 7 in the morning till 3 at night. And 9 o'clock in the morning, me and you catch a guy coming out of a bank robbery. And I mean, no mistake about it. He's wearing yeah. a ski mask and he's shooting his gun at people yeah. coming out of the bank with, 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 with a bag. Yeah. Me and you engage him and we kill the guy. We are not going to go home for at least 24 hours. We are going to be interviewed by everybody, sergeants, captains, people from the one police plaza, um, detectives, a district attorney with a stenographer is going to come down and take our statements, right? Then they're going to put us on restricted duty, right? And if they think the shooting is in the slightest bit, we acted wrong, they're going to, or they'll put you on modified and they'll take your guns from you, right? Then they're going to, and if, the, if they're not sure about the shooting, they're going to transfer you to the, like the NYPD's version of Siberia. You know what I mean? And, and then they're going to run. Then they're going to bring you and your partner to testify before a grand jury of 16 to 23 people to see if your actions were justified. And if that grand jury isn't having a good morning and they go, you know, they could have just told him to drop the gun. He wasn't hurting anybody. And they vote to indict. You get arrested and you go through the system like everybody else. And now you got to you got to go to trial for this. So. It's not loosey-goosey with gunplay like you see on television and the mm-hmm. movies. You are held very – you are held to your actions. 
as they should, right? Like, yeah. there's consequences, right, to the choices you make, like you mentioned before. Well, well, they're giving you an enormous amount of power, right? They're giving you the mm-hmm. power to incarcerate people. They're giving you the power to stop people. They're giving you the power, if God forbid, to defend yourself. They're giving you a weapon. So there has to be checks and balances. You know, it's not the Wild West like they show on television, like some cop is wired up, smoking a cigar, and he's like got the bandoleros of bullets around him, and he's just going around, you know, Dirty Harry. I mean, listen, that's one of the reasons I wanted to be a cop watching Dirty Harry movies, but I quickly realized within the first 15 minutes of that movie, it's not the same. No, I think you're right. I think, I I mean, I I like your point on consequences, too. I think that oftentimes, right, we get so caught up in the movies, right? Yeah, yeah, Oh, yeah, it's fun, right? We like it. It's entertainment. I mean, do you ever watch them and you're like, oh, like, it's just entertaining to you because you're almost you find it amusing, would you say? Because you're like, oh, that is not what happens. But you know what? It makes me look awesome. It, it's I get asked that a lot. No, when I was a kid, I did. But then once I became a cop, it's it, it's annoying now because then you get pissed off. You know what I mean? And like mm-hmm. you see people like in television and movies like kicking ass and taking names like, yeah, OK. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like <laughs> there's no way. You know what I mean? I, I get a kick out of some of these movies. You got a guy that weighs like 135 pounds throwing people to the floor. I'm like, yeah, good luck. Like, you know, the bad guys don't fight back. And. You know what I mean? You don't see a cop with a knot on his head. I mean, my friends, you'd see them with black eyes and missing teeth sometimes. Oh, yeah, I mean, you know, they, they, they fight back, you know, the bad guys. Yeah, that. oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> someone pins you down. You're not going to just be sitting there like, oh, yeah, whatever. I'll just take it. No. Usually our response is either to run and then, right, fight or flight. That's our Yes, yeah, absolutely. That goes on all the time, fight or flight. Yeah, so I mean, I mean, you mentioned it at the beginning too, right? People they just start running. It's like, oh crap, right? You got to run, or right when you eventually like someone's got a hand on you, you're gonna start fighting back. You're, it's just it's biological there. So I'm gonna ask the intelligent question of the day, and this is something that I've I feel like this is a stressful job. I feel like a lot of people may get stressed, but I mean, you seem to be handling it well. That what I want to ask is, how do you handle that much stress and then just Go about having a positive outlook on life because you seem like a very positive guy. I enjoyed it. I, you know, it's it's. I'm, I think I'm one of those rare people that I, I live my dream. It's the job I totally wanted. I got it, and I loved every minute of it. Were there times I'm like, oh, this sucks working Times Square on New Year's Eve or being down at Ground Zero during 9/11? You learn to compartmentalize things. You, you learn to not bring things home. You know, it, it, I enjoyed it. Um, were there stressful times? Yeah, but it wasn't overwhelming. You know, I, I look back on my career. Uh, I'm not a sour grapes kind of guy. I, I enjoyed it. Not now. Not everybody has that. I've seen marriages deteriorate. You know, during their time with the department, or after they retire, things fall apart, or you know, cops slip into alcoholism because they can't find their place after they retire from law enforcement. You just have to keep busy. You know what I mean? And and find something, you know, that drives you, you know, gives you another passion. That's why I got into writing these NYPD books because I was bored out of my mind. And my friend said, you know, you got all these funny stories about behind the scenes stuff with the NYPD. Why don't you start writing it down? And I said, yeah, maybe I'll give it a shot. And I wrote the first book and it started selling. I wrote the second book and, and here I am now talking to you. So, you know, you just got to you got to keep busy. You can't dwell on bad things. You, you know, it's not, it's not going to get you anywhere. 
I 100% agree. I think, I mean, this is just general life advice too, but oftentimes, right, when we dwell on these things that are hard, because, I mean, I hate to break to you, everyone has just hard, stressful points in their life. But if you just dwell on them and say, oh, this sucks, this sucks, I'm like, yeah, your life's going to start sucking. (laughs) But like you said, if you get busy, find something to do that keeps you and it's enjoyable, then you kind of get out of that and you find you know, peace, I guess, is the word I'm looking for. So a little bit about the author, let's, before we wrap up here, what kind of, I mean, you had a friend you said that came to you. I'm wondering how, how hard was it like of a learning curve? Because I mean, right, it's one run in the streets and actually living it, but then it's another to actually put it on paper. I want to kind of get your experience on that. Yeah. Um, I, you know, it's funny. I, I tried writing in chronological order and I failed miserably at it. I'm not that disciplined a writer or, or that talented. So what I do with my books is I'll think of a general topic. So in one of my books, I have a chapter called Crossing Over to the Dark Side. And that's cops that went bad and police corruption. That's some of it that I saw in my time in the department. And then what I'll do is I'll put Crossing Over to the Dark Side. That's a chapter. And then I'll have subtopics and have several stories about that. And then I'll move on to another story. Uh, Another chapter will be practical jokers. And that's the practical jokes that cops play on each other, be it putting a chicken in a a drawer. I put crickets in the backseat of a cop's car. You know, all sorts of crazy shit that goes on behind the scenes in an NYPD station out. So my books don't really have a beginning, middle or end. And I realized it was fun then. Once I got out of that mindset, all right, I go into the police academy. I work in this precinct. This happened. I work in this unit. That happened. I'm like, you know, nobody wants to hear this shit. Let's get to the fun stuff. Let's get to the interesting stuff. So my, you know, my book, I come out swinging in my books. Like my last NYPD book, Law and Disorder, it opens up with embarrassing moments. Like everybody thinks that, you know, an author or a cop doesn't have an embarrassing moment. And it opens up with, and it's a true story, I'm in uniform in a public restroom with my gun belt on the door. And some kid runs into the next stall, jumps on the seat and tries to take my gun belt. And I'm in a hockey fight with my pants down and my ankles trying to pull my gun back over the wall. So if you show people that you're human and you can poke fun at yourself, chances are they're going to buy your books. No, I I 100% agree. So a little bit then on the books, if people want to reach out to you, buy your book, get a hold of you, whatever it may be, what's the best way, one, they can find you, and two, find your books and get them where they yeah, need sure. to? Yeah, um, sure. Just go on Amazon, go to the book section, type in my name, Vic, Ferrari like the car, and all six of my books will come up. Four of NYPD themed. The other two were basically life, about life experiences that I had. All the covers, like NYPD Lauren Disorder, they've got like something funny going on in the front, which really happened. Um, all my book, my books are paperback. They're 10 bucks. They're about 220 pages. It's light reading and $2.99 ebook download. And if you want to get a hold of me on social media, you can find me at VicFerrari50 on Twitter and Instagram. Awesome. Well, Vic, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate you taking the time and sharing these awesome experiences with me. I I definitely learned a lot about how, you know, police and law works in New York and NYPD. And I also uh, think the listeners learned as well. So thank you for taking the time to come on. Thank you, Josh. I appreciate it. So everyone, as you can tell, that is Vic Ferrari. 
as you can tell, he's a very intelligent person, has great things to say. I challenge you guys, if you liked anything you heard today, which I sure did, to go buy his book and check him out on social media. Stay tuned till next week. We have a great guest lined up for you guys. See you guys next week, and let's get after it. Hey everyone, if you liked this episode and would like to hear more, be sure to hit that subscribe or follow button. We release a new episode every Wednesday for you guys to listen to. Thank you guys so much for the support that you give. We could not have done this without you guys. If you would like to be a potential guest on the show, check out intelligentconvos.com and fill out the form there. Thank you guys again, and let's get after it.